Welcome back everybody, happy 2019. Um, it's been a little bit of a while, but of course the Christmas period was upon us. Yeah. And in that vein, you know, none of who has time to be recording, editing, listening over to a podcast. Not us, but we do now, so. Yeah, and we thought it would be fun to have our first episode of 2019 um, be about a reflection kind of on 2018. And yeah. on some of our cultural highlights from that year. Definitely. Namely books. As you know from our podcast, we always enjoy talking about what we've been reading, mm-hmm. um, authors that we've been following, yeah. and books we've been looking forward to, and what we've read on our Goodreads accounts. As you know, we are passionate users of Goodreads. Oh, we are Goodreads. If you want to sponsor us, please do. We love the surf. We're big into Goodreads. So. And I think, actually, we both really started using Goodreads properly this time last year. Yeah. So that could be an yeah. interesting kind of story to discuss later in the podcast well yeah especially if you're a book reader and you want to kind of think about putting good what you think to yourself like why would you get put goodreads into your lives and then it's one of those things where i think like conscious tracking of your reading reading activities and also of what's going on in the book world and being able to tag and look at reviews of books and that kind of thing really i think encourages you to actually be a conscientious reader as much as just like a casual reader so yeah i think so and I, i think it's a way of it's a way of keeping track of what books that you want to read as well um, and also seeing, you know, you follow your friends in the same way that you do on other social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way of you seeing like, oh, Helen has read this. So maybe I'll read that too and add it to my to read yeah. list. So yeah, we've really enjoyed that. But we'll, we'll come back to that later on. But at first, we're going to another special guest. Yay! Yay! Like a special is... guest like song. I know, we really should. Uh, a <laughs> jingle. Um... It's great to welcome someone to the podcast. More from the book world, actually, because we're very so passionate about books. And this particular author actually is one of Francesca's childhood favourites. Yeah, so the author is Hilary McKay, who's an award-winning children's author. Um, you might know her from books such as Safi's Angel or The Exiles, which were all books that I read and loved as a child. Safi's Angel, um, the one about the 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 girl who's friend dies no no that's Jacqueline Wilson book isn't it <laughs> sorry <laughs> carry on carry um, on does that like a Jacqueline Wilson book to me yeah no so Safi's Angel is the first in the Casson family series which is her books about this eccentric family and the various different children in the family and their lives and just the everyday happenings that happen to them and Safi's Angel comes from uh, this like story in her background which is then explored in the book um but yeah, so Hilary McKay is the author of the new book, The Skylark's War, uh, which has had a lot of attention. Um, it's shortlisted for the Costa Book Awards. Uh, it's currently, it's January and it's January, it's um, Waterstone's Book of the Month for January. So it's a, had a lot of, a lot of, um, it's had a lot of traction and a lot of attention in the book world recently. So um, we were so thrilled to have Hilary come on the podcast and I got to interview her and like fangirl a bit about her books that I read as a child and then also ask her questions about the Skylark's War, which I recently read. Um, so it was really exciting and we're going to have that interview for you pretty soon. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Pretty soon! <laughs> well, on the Vicky's Angel note, just on the side, I worked at it. Oh, Jackson Vicky's Wilson. Angel, yeah. Vicky's Angel. Do you know, many of you, if any of you read this, it's a book that everyone seemed to have read back in like 2000. Mm. But the girl whose best friend dies. Anyway, so I, to kind of continue, well, to set the scene, I read this on the way back from Edinburgh. After um, the great trip. And, you know, it's like a four-hour, 20-minute journey on the train from Edinburgh to London. And I basically just read it the whole way. Um, really enjoyed it, as I will obviously talk more about with Hilary and in the interview that's upcoming. But, yeah, I think it's a, a book that you should definitely seek out if you haven't already. Uh, whether you're a child or not, what you want to be a child? Hi, all the children listening to our podcast. Why aren't your parents stopping you? Is this 18 plus, do you think? Or swearing? Probably it is. No talk of sexy men who are crazy. I think it's definitely 18 plus. <laughs> She's crying. <laughs> oh, who tried to say I was distracted? Yeah, so what I was trying to say is whether you're young or old, uh, I think it appeals to everybody and it's something that, you know, you could read with a child in your life, but you could also just read yourself as an adult. And I I definitely think we talked a bit about this in the interview, Hilary and I, that there is more of a a trend towards adults like openly reading children's fiction and not just young adult Mm -hmm. fiction, but children's fiction and finding something to enjoy in it. Um, 
yeah so I really hope you enjoyed the interview and would love to hear any feedback that you have or any thoughts and whether you've read the Skylarks War and if you want to get in touch that would be fantastic so enjoy Hilary Bacay is an award-winning children's author known for her lively intelligent whimsical but realistic books that are enjoyed by young people and adults alike Hilary's been writing fiction for nearly 30 years and she's perhaps best known for her books about the eccentric but endearing Casson family. Her latest book, The Skylark's War, was published in late 2018, coinciding with the centenary of the end of the First World War. The novel follows the intertwining lives of a group of young people navigating childhood and later young adulthood, with the First World War firmly on the horizon. It's joyous and heartwarming, but also a hard-hitting and often emotional evocation of the lost generation. I devoured Hilary's books as a child and I was absolutely delighted to chat to her for Love's Labour's Watched about her career as an author, writing about the First World War in an age-appropriate way, and some of her favourite novels of the past year. I think I wrote for pleasure a long time before I wrote for publication. Now I think about it. Um, And I wrote about the landscape I'd left behind and I put my... I'm the oldest of four four sisters. Yeah. And I, I put I put them all in the book. I was very naive when I wrote it the first time. I didn't change their names. Oh really? <laughs> I said it off to the publisher, she said, Hillary, you'd better change her names. So so I did that, but I forgot to change their birthdays, which they've always they've always remembered. So um yeah, that started me off and it was just a bit of fun to see if it would work and it did work I was very lucky yeah so for any of our listeners that haven't read The Exiles it's a book about uh, four sisters who were in Cornwall for the summer I believe mm-hmm. um, no not Cornwall it's Cumbria oh Cumbria that's it yeah, it's so, the Lake District yeah yeah um, I think I read it when I was 10 so <laughs> I remember, but I do remember really enjoying it and enjoying all the, the different st- sisters have different storylines um, but what did your sisters think about being immortalised in print in that way they were not at all impressed. They were not impressed. They recognised themselves too clearly. Um, I've never done it again. I think it was a rookie mistake to make. My grandmother, who is also a big character in the book, was very impressed. And they're all being, I'm astonished at this, they're all being republished next next year. Oh, that's great. So they're all coming back to life again. Yeah. I don't know, don't know what sort of a reception they'll have. It's very much a different world from 26 years ago. Yeah. I think my favourite um, books of yours were the Castle and Family si- series. Um, I absolutely loved those growing up. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, you know, those are still in print and people are still reading them. And is it strange um, to sort of have your readers grow up before your eyes, but also, you know, maybe introduce their children to your books? And it's this kind of cycle. Is that exciting or sometimes a bit odd? No, it's wonderful. I get people saying, like you saying, can I? I do a quick interview. I read your books when I was ten, and you think this is they've grown up yeah. with a, a little part of my life. And there are little there there are some children who started writing to me when they were nine or ten years old. There's one girl in particular I think of, and now she's in her second year at university, and she's still keeping up the contact and writing to me. And oh, that's lovely. Yeah. It, it, so they have grown up with the books, and they're so helpful as well because they say, "I like this. This is a bit." Out of touch. It's really nice. My own children are that sort of age as well. Now they've grown up through them too. Many of your books, uh, certainly the Exiles and the Casson Family series, they deal with sort of everyday realities of family life and and growing up um, and school holidays, um, but with this sort of lightness of touch and hopefulness. Um, do, does real life interest you as a subject more than perhaps fantasy? It does more than fantasy, I think, because I think real people, if you talk to them, they've all got a story. You can't stand in a queue without somebody talking to you if you'll listen to them, you know? Yeah. I do like real life, and I like to think that there's a borderline between real life and fantasy. There is a little bit of accessible, I don't like to call it magic, or fantasy, but there's a bit of otherness that I try to introduce to the books. Yeah. I, think I don't know if that works or comes through. I think so. I think uh, perhaps it's a kind of whimsical style to an extent, but it is still grounded in that reality. Uh, I think often because your stories are told from the perspective of younger characters, 
who perhaps do see the world in a slightly different way than the adults do. Um, uh-huh. Like Rose um, in the, the Castle and Family series. I love Rose. <laughs> um, and her kind of like slightly off kilter perspective is very funny, but also, yeah, in- enjoyable to read. And as an adult, too, I believe. I think adults are reading my books quite a lot, actually. I don't know if it's because they grew up with them as you have, or if No, I think some are coming across them. I think there's a much more acceptance these days of adults reading what you might say, in quotes, are children's books. Although I know a lot of children's writers who say, I don't particularly write for children, I have child characters, you know. But um, what they're doing is telling a story. I certainly think with The Skylark's War, um, I, you know, it's certainly appropriate for children to read, um, but I don't think it's specifically, you know, it's not dumbed down or, you know, you deal with the impact of the First World War on a group of young people, and it, that is a sensitive subject. <coughs> How did you sort of tackle that? How did you go about, um, you know, bringing those realities to life for your readers, but also in a, in a way that is age-appropriate? Um, I'll talk about that in two stages. How I tackled it was, it was a very immersive process. I got a lot of things from that time I got. eBay is a wonderful thing. You can buy the Times newspapers that covered the war and the magazines that went with them. That was a very useful, useful in two ways, not just because of the actual information, because it was almost like a time portal. It carried you back. I had other things too. I had their school books. Um, I had a golden sovereign on my desk of the right date. It was 1911. Mm. Um, I used all those things and I used the Army and Navy stores catalogues which had all the prices in so I could get fashions and prices and things correct for that economic age range and, and, and style. So I had all that. And how I made it age appropriate, I don't think I did. I was reading it to a primary school about a few weeks ago and I found that I had to really annotate the text of the First World War trenches before I could read it to children. I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, I took out a lot of awfulness, but I think I left enough in to know that it was an unremittingly bad war. It didn't achieve very much politically. Yeah. Unlike the Second World War, which whatever people went through, they could say, we have done this for this reason, you know? I think a lot of people wandered away from the First World War and didn't know why it had happened to them, and people didn't talk about it afterwards. My grandfather was one of those people. The, the, there's a, a passage in your book which really st- um, stuck with me along those lines, um, which is talking about how, you know, on both sides they were perfectly reasonable people, uh-huh. The sort who in their previous lives let wasps out the windows, read storybooks to children, doing all the proper voices, flinched at flat notes. That really stuck with me because I think it does underline that, you know, this concept of good and evil, um, if that exists at all, certainly didn't exist in the First World War. It was, you know, all these different people who were ordinary, had regular lives, who were suddenly caught up in this in this terrible conflict. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought that was a really... Uh, memorable way of, of dialing that home. Oh, thank you. Yes, I think they were, because if you think about that period, they had very little information. You know, even a radio was a luxury. There wasn't any BBC till 10 years after it started, I think, 1921. They were very much influenced and informed by what they were told to believe, and they thought my grandfather thought he was going to go and have a good adventure and some camping and things like that. And he ended up 1914 to 1918, you know. And he was one of thousands on both sides, I think. They went in without knowing what they were doing. And I don't think anybody had any idea how long it would last. It was was just very sad. But I tried to also lighten it because you can't do tragedy all the time. And I don't believe people do. I think there are still jokes and friendships and, you know, that matter. Definitely, and I think because you're writing about um, young people who are still experiencing um, first love and new friends and going to new schools and dances and you know, all of those things still carry on even in you know this sort of really this time of incredible upheaval. Yeah. Um, the book reminded me of 
well, War Horse and Private Peaceful, which are two other children's novels that delve into the subject of the First World War. But uh-huh. I think I found it most spiritually similar to Vera Britton's Testament of Youth, um, yes. which I read a couple of years ago and has, has stuck with me ever since. It's a haunting book, isn't it? I read it years ago. Um, I didn't sit down and see the film. I thought I couldn't stand. There was a film of it wasn't there, and I thought it was... I, I was the same. I thought, I, I don't think I can watch that. <laughs> I, have to I thought I don't think myself. I can watch it, yeah. Yeah, but it is, I think the thing that really I found in that book is the fact that you read a good deal about what uh, Vera Britton and her, her friends and family's life was like before the war. And uh-huh. then there is obviously a whole section of the book which is about, you know, the, what she did and what everyone else did and how that affected them. Um, and I think in, in your book, The Skylarks War, that's a similar kind of structure in that you learn about these characters and you learn about their hopes and dreams and then you see how the war impacts that. And I think that's almost more powerful than if you were launched straight into the wartime setting. It gives you time. You have to set them up as real people. By the time the war comes, I think you know the characters in the Skylarks very well indeed. Um, And so, of course, you care about them. Well, they're not strangers. They weren't to me. I I grew very fond of all of them. and, and I think you need that context. You need you need to say these were real people, and that is how I grounded them into reality. I I showed what they'd gone through anyway. It's a pretty tough time, especially yeah. for girls. Um, growing up, there wasn't much education and a lot of constraints. If the war did anything, I suppose it liberated girls to an extent, or speeded up the process that was beginning anyway. Yeah, and. And certainly Clary, the protagonist, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the characters are, are captivating, but I think she's the one who sticks with you. And she's living in, in this constrictive time in the early 20th century, but she does embody many of the ambitions and ideals of modern women. And, and Vanessa as well is the same. Yes. Was that a conscious decision of yours to write um, a young female character who girls today probably can relate to as well as... Um, you know, it's not, it's not anachronistic that she has those beliefs or those ideals, but, yeah, it allows for it allows for a sense of relation to today. Absolutely. I wanted... I didn't want a pitiful character. I didn't want an, a, somebody who wasn't coping. She's got a great deal of fighting spirit and she's very intelligent, and I wanted to show that it is possible and was possible for her and is for girls now, you know. If they want something enough, they can have it. And without being ruthless, she was, she all the time, I think, cared for the people around her. But she carried on, determined to be independent. Her father said, you can marry somebody, you know. And that's not what she wanted. She wanted the freedom of her own income. Um, and I thought that was a good way of expressing it. And also Vanessa is a very feisty modern girl, I think. She wanted to get off and do something, and she did it and had fun doing it at the same time. Um, yes, so I think they are very modern girls in a way. I think they would fit fit into our society equally well. You know, you could see them saying, I'm going to be the only girl doing physics, if that's what it takes at my school. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you touched on it a little bit in your last answer with um, uh, Clary's father, who is this very detached, absent figure. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's very unlikable, but it's also that he's really just not around. Um, no, he doesn't care about them at all. No, and that's... Um, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting because that's something that obviously is not specific to that period. You know, many people might have a detached relationship with their parents. Is mm-hmm. that something that you wanted to write about in particular, or did that just kind of come about when you were formulating the, the plot and the characters? I did want to show that you can do it without parental support. Yeah. I did want to show that that's not a personal thing. I think it's just a fact that, and I think often that I do have one reader who lost a parent very early on in her childhood and instead of it hitting her and knocking her flat, she picked herself up and has done brilliantly. I wanted to show that negative can also be a a force for power in a way. Are there any other historical periods that you think you'd like to write about having delved really deeply into the First World War and, you know, you mentioned getting the, all the different artefacts from eBay and, and really immersing yourself in that time? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the obvious thing is to go on to Second World War with the next generation of children in the book. Yeah. 
that did cross my mind at the end of the novel when you do... Um, it has crossed a lot of people's minds. I don't know if that will happen, but um, I am thinking about that. But I have written... I wrote a book about the Iceni some years ago, and I loved doing that. That was another immersive thing about the occupation, the Roman occupation of Britain uh, in a pretty cultured society and the impact it had, the two conflicts. And I enjoyed that. I do like historical writing, I have to say. It's interesting for me as well. Yeah. You still have the characterization and the real people because, of course, they were real people. But you have the added interest of discovering about a world you didn't know about. So, yeah, I might do more history. Well, I probably will do more history. And you mentioned earlier about um, your grandfather and the role he played in the First World War. Did you um, think about some of those family stories that you know get passed down through generations when you were writing this book? Yes, very much so. And I spoke to other people, not just my own family, about it, who had similar experiences. But the thing about my grandfather was, it was he had two sons afterwards. After he, he was two years fighting, and then he was two years prisoner of war, which was extremely hard because Germany was starving itself, and they couldn't feed their prisoners. And he was never healthy afterwards. But the thing about him was that despite having two boys who were pretty gung-ho, he wouldn't talk about it and he didn't talk about it. They could never get a war story out of him until a few days before his death when he said, don't give me a gravestone. I left too many friends in unmarked graves and that was the only thing that he ever said about it. Mm. But you could see that all his life it had haunted him. He hadn't managed to put it to one side, he just blocked it. But when I spoke about that too, I spoke about that at a literary event not very long ago in the autumn, and the other writer on stage with me said in the green room afterwards, you could have been talking about my grandfather, that's exactly what he did. And I have friends who I talked about when I was writing the book, and they say, yes, it's in our family, we know it happened, there are no stories. I mean, they're all from the Second World War, but they were very much encouraged to put it behind them and get on with it yeah. when they got back. So, um, no, I didn't have any much information at all from my own family to use, because it wasn't spoken of. Yeah, it, I think that's quite... Um you know, it had this huge, terrible impact on this whole generation. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, as you as you say, it wasn't discussed, and that's perhaps partly um, something, a mindset associated with the time, and also yes, probably I, that it was just so traumatising for those involved. I think it literally left some people speechless. Mm. They, they didn't know how to describe it. I, I mean, I think still these days, if something unpleasant happens to you, you don't... I, but I myself don't talk about it because I don't know how to express the impact on myself and that is trivial, it's nothing. It's, it's pathetic to mention in the context of four years in the trenches, you know, but I suppose they didn't have a way of expressing it, they weren't encouraged to and they went straight into a country that was absolutely plunged into recession and their jobs weren't waiting for them either, that was the other thing. They weren't particularly needed when they got back. No, I think whenever I read or watch something that is, is set in that period and you get to the end and, you know, the, the First World War is over, it, mm-hmm. it's never quite fully uplifting because you're always aware that there is so much more... It's yeah. a very difficult period, as you say, the recession, and then obviously the Second World War, like, following not long afterwards. I know, yeah. yeah. It is very hard, I think, because they were told they were fighting the war to end all wars and, lo and behold, their kids all had to go off again, you know, a generation later. They were, they were very young. You know, I did an enlistment chapter, which was entirely true. That's how long it took. Nobody checked a birth certificate. Nobody particularly checked their health. Nobody checked with their parents. There are records of 12-year-olds fighting in the trenches. There, there are firm records of 13 or 14-year-olds going through years of it, you know. They were really just rounded up and posted off with very little training. Yeah. They hadn't... They hadn't fired a gun because ammunition was so short they couldn't waste it practicing it. It sounds ridiculous now, but perhaps it's not ridiculous. Perhaps if we looked further afield, if we looked to Syria, we'd find the same young people facing the same non-choice of what to do next, you know. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think by writing um, a book like this, and, and this is how I felt about Testament of Youth as well, was it really put me in the mindset of of being somebody in that period and, and being in that situation because I think it's easy for us to see the First World War as, as quite an alien concept because the idea of people going off to fight thinking they'd be home at Christmas and feeling very jolly about the whole thing is is just not something that we in the 21st century can particularly relate to or certainly not in, in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. And when you read books about characters who were a similar age to you who are... Um, suddenly thrust into that environment and how they react it is a lot more it brings it home for you definitely good good yeah. it was meant to. you said earlier like um you know your book is is still there are a lot of moments of humor it's very warm and uh, and comforting as well to read um despite the the difficult subject matter well i really yeah. enjoyed the book and really enjoyed speaking to you today as well thank you so much oh that's a pleasure thank you very much for including me that's really kind of you um Yes, it's been lovely, especially as you liked the books before you read this one. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I was so thrilled when I heard about the success of this book because, yeah, there's a, particularly the Casson family books, are books I still think about, you know, when you ever so often comes into your mind. And I always wonder what happens to the characters. And if you ever want to write another book in that series, I would be very keen. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I would one day. Maybe I'll write the book of Eve, the Casson mother. Yeah, I mean, that would be fascinating, definitely. Yeah. Um, so one final question just before I let you go, which is, so this um, episode, as I said, is about the, the best books of the year. Um, if you had to recommend a book to our listeners, which could be any genre, um, non-fiction, fiction, children's book, young adult, adult book, whatever um, you prefer, uh, is there one in particular that springs to mind? Gosh, I've read so many books this year that have come out. Um... The last one I read that really stuck in my mind is called The Way Past Winter. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. It's being very well reviewed. Um, it's a sort of retelling of a Russian fairy tale, but it's got an environmental edge on it as well. Okay, yeah. And it's um, I would recommend that one. It's a beautiful book. Look it up if you get a chance. I will do, yeah. That sounds great. Thank you very I much. Could, I could give you a list of 20, to be honest. <laughs> Well, I mean, we would we would both enjoy that, but... <laughs> it's been a great year for children's books. There's a book by Piers Torday out, Anania. Not a, a, a sort of pastiche, but anyway, it's also wonderful. Called The Lost Magician. But The Way Past Winter by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. Right. It's the latest book I've read that's stuck in my mind, so... Oh, there you are. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Francesca. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye, Hilary. All right, so big thank you to Hilary for that really interesting discussion. I have actually, I will admit to having not read any of her books at all. I was like more of a Michael Morpogo kind of gal mm. back in the day. But um, I'm definitely interested. I'm very much a fantastical fairy tale kind of person. So um, looking into the book that she recommended, it seems really interesting, actually. So I'll yeah. give that a read when I manage to get through the mountain of other books I meant to read also. Ah! Yeah, it was really great to get her recommendation of a book that really stood out to her for the, from the past year because I think yeah. that's something that I always find it interesting when an author gives their opinion on their favourite book yeah. because they probably view it in a slightly different way having um, obviously gone through that process of trying to get the book published and, you know, <clears throat> seeing what readers respond to. And... Yeah, absolutely, because I think once you become a, a proper author, uh, someone who's just a writer, so can't completely say, um, I, I think when you're just writing for yourself what you feel you want to read is kind of maybe your main impetus or what you want to see out there. But actually getting audience responses must be very novel for somebody who hasn't had that before. And actually I had a quick peek on Goodreads, shout out to Goodreads again, uh, to this book, um, just so I could see kind of what it's about, everyone's saying. Actually it's got some of the best reviews I've seen on Goodreads. And to remind you, like Goodreads is one of those places where bots and trolls read do exist too. So equally there are people out there who are... badly reviewing books just yeah. for the lols so the fact that like it has concertedly good reviews like over four stars is actually pretty amazing especially for i definitely think they're also um middle grade or ya young adult books not children so much because they're meant for the reading level of children but 14 upwards 
I have lots to recommend them. If you think about the Historic Material series, Philip Pullman's books are all those ones are meant for 14 plus. Yeah. All the books that I like the most are meant for teenagers or really kind of like, you know, young teenagers, like 13. Um, and they have a lot to recommend them in those ways, in terms of the quality of writing, the quality of story, the especially the kind of lessons they try and teach you. Um, I think that they're definitely worth dipping into. So well, I thought it was really interesting what Hilary said in the interview about trying to get trying to have a, a female protagonist whose mm. ambitions and ideals kind of transcended her time and were potentially inspirational to young women and, yeah. and boys boys and girls today, um, everybody really. Uh, I think that was really thought-provoking and something that, you know, when you do come across a strong protagonist as a, at a young age, it, it can really stick with you, like somebody like Lyra from his Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so... On the similar vein, we thought it would be fun to talk about our favourite books of the year, as we said, and other kind of reading experiences we had. Yeah. Um, so let's start off with Goodreads, as we keep referring to. We might as well talk about it properly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think we definitely spoke about it earlier in some of our earlier podcasts, um, just about how our experiences with it and how we really liked it. And I think we both felt, yeah, like, what could this what could this platform really do that's so great? And Yeah, it's a bit inaccessible. That's one thing. The actual, uh, what's the word? Not the framework, the... Like the interface? Yeah, that's it. The interface. Good, good, good use of the word interface. Thank you. Um, the interface is not particularly easy to use. It's not meant for... As of yet, I've never found a site that's good for browsing. Not yet. The best place for browsing is a book, is a, is a bricks and mortar but bookshop, in my opinion. But yeah. still, it's a great place if you know what you're looking for, what book, what author, what series, um, it's perfect for that. And... Once you get used to the interface, I will say it's better on the app than it is on the site because yeah, the app is meant much better, more yeah. for tracking and tagging books. Yeah. The site is not so much for that. Um, you actually start to really get the hang of it. And I think for me personally, what I've loved so much about it is searching up a book that I've heard about or seen. And it doesn't matter what price it is. I'm not asking who else has read it. And what I'm looking for is what other people have kind of said and what the kind of vibe is and what the general what the general presence of it is in the reading community yeah i think so and also getting a feel of the book beyond just like what the blurb is like and like so for example at the weekend i was at a bookshop and i was trying to work out what book i wanted to buy like i knew i wanted to buy a new book mm. and i had like various books on my to read list on goodreads yeah and i was knew i kind of probably wanted to read all of them but you know when you're trying to work out what you want to read next yeah and you, there's maybe a specific vibe you do or don't want and you don't even always have the words you can't even always find the words to like actually describe exactly what it is that you're after yeah but when you read certain reviews so if you read a review that said this took me a while to get into but then i eventually enjoyed it that's different than reading a review that's like i was really gripped from day page one or you yeah know, whatever it absolutely might be. um and i think because they're reviews from just ordinary people as opposed to critics but they also do, in my experience anyway, tend to be quite thorough reviews and like good yeah. reviews, like better than reviews that you find on Amazon. Yeah, honestly. Be very like facetious. But yeah, I think we've both really enjoyed it. And the fact that we've now, we're both sitting here with our phones with the app up. Yeah. It allows us to remember okay. in detail what we've read. So um, yeah, we were going to talk a bit like about some, a couple of our favourite books from the past year. And obviously we might have discussed these in the past on the podcast. Um, but you don't remember. But, yeah, so... it was probably some time ago and in a slightly different context. So there we go. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess I can go first. Yeah, go for it. I mean, I've been doing these books read uh, lists since about 2015, actually, mm. just because I've always been a book person and I've never really, I sort of fell out of love, not fell out of love with it, it's the wrong thing, but like fell out of habit. So I don't know. I mean, I go back and forward on which ones I want to talk about. I mean, my favourite books I've read this year are definitely two The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, who is an absolutely fantastic classical. Uh, history author. So all both her books she's read, written. So she wrote The Song of Achilles. 2016, I think it was published. Yeah. This year she published Circe, which came out to a lot of buzz because The Song of Achilles got a lot of good praise. And you read them both this year, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Song of Achilles I got into because it had good reviews and also um, I'm really into sweet, gay, boy love stories this year. It's completely a theme of what I read. So, uh, and I love ancient history and I thought it sounded like a really lyrical 
a beautiful love story that also has to end in tragedy but the good thing was for me I don't like being surprised by sad things in books so I knew it was going to happen the whole time it was just so evocative and so beautiful Andre Asiman like who wrote Call Me By Your Name which I also read this year um just really poetic beautiful tale of like just like two people who loved each other and I found that really sweet it was so gorgeously written and you know the character of Achilles I find so compelling how she wrote it you know intensely he's this like guy who has this um fate to basically be the scourge of Troy and to be a great hero and a demigod and everything and he has all of that and he has all the potential to be this basically war hungry man but like he's portrayed in, in like Troy or the yeah. Iliad or something but actually when it comes to his love for Patroclus who is characterized as like this very normal guy and Achilles like recognizes what a good person he is and is changed by him mm-hmm. and his fate comes close to being changed by his love for Patroclus um even though in the end it turns out the way you expect the story to and you know the story will um and it's beautiful it's, it was just a really beautiful story and I didn't mind it ended sadly so that was one thing do you think that do you think that someone would enjoy it if they weren't as familiar with classical mythology yeah yeah absolutely because it's not particularly uh it's it's if you read it and you know what you're on about with classical history then it is sort of like obviously inspired in by the tales yeah but equally like she really humanizes the characters and gives you a real sense of what the key problems and the key um themes of the traditional story are without making it too difficult to understand like I don't know a lot about sorry I know a lot about ancient history in terms of the ins and outs Mm. just the basic story so I'll say if you've watched Troy and you understood that then you'll understand this book yeah Um, and this is much more beautiful than that so that one and also Less by Andrew Sean Greer which is a similar similar theme Um, it's got gay people in it Um, and that one is about a 50, 50 year old writer who tries to escape um, an invitation to his ex's wedding by travelling around the world and picking up random invitations to random events as a writer and he goes around the world and meets some funny people and in the end it's like a mediation on like homosexuality and the nature of love and the nature of writing and of friendship and it won a Pulitzer last year and honestly I didn't understand halfway through why it had won it but then I finished it and I was like oh yeah that's why it won yeah. it was really funny and it's a bit more journalistic in style because of the Pulitzer is a journal, journal, journalism prize in mm. the end. But it was really heartwarming and a beautiful book. Um, and I really, really liked it. But with those two said, I also want to quickly jump into um, a couple of other things that I did like. Coined by Your Name is one. And then three fantasy historical, fantasy, sorry, fantasy YA, uh, which is my home territory. Um, the Night Circus, Erin Morgenstern, which is old. Strange the Dreamer, Lenny Taylor, which is newish, and uh, A Natural History of Dragons, Marie Brennan, which is also a bit older. Three female writers, three strong female characters within the novels, beautifully written, conceptualised wonderfully. One is set in like this weird, one is set as like a, essentially like a David Attenborough style memoir of a dragon naturalist, which is really cool. Victorian, set in Victorian time, Victorian style times. Uh, as if dragons existed during the age of discovery and the age of enlightenment and you know darwin kind of times another is completely fantastical lady taylor who wrote strange the dreamer is one of the best fantasy writers i've ever ever read like she's absolutely fantastic and she manages to write these stories about good versus evil but really twisted because actually you're not sure who's good and you're not sure who's evil mm-hmm. and the monsters are not monsters and the good people are not actually good and the politics of it and the imagination is absolutely fantastic. And then The Night Circus, Erin Morgenstern, is like an American magical realism style one about like the rise of the circus, like Bar- Bar- Barney and Barnum and Bailey, yeah, Greatest Showman um, style. I have read The Night Circus but yeah. years ago. Years yeah. ago. And I read it for the first time. It's, you know, it's like, it's actually not particularly new at all. But it's, again, just conceptualised it beautifully. It's so kind of like Baroque and Gothic. Mm. Um, very like a water for elephants or any circus themed thing that you read or watched um and again it just had this really beautiful story of like inevitability and magic and friendship and love as well and the three of those i really want to highlight because i liked madeline miller and andrew sean greer the best in terms of their writing quality but those three the imagination was absolutely completely flawless and like that's the kind of writing i aim to do um 
and that's it's I mean it's all fantasy and it's all love stories and that's literally who I that's literally like absolutely who I am but yeah I think that's what I like so it's interesting when so when I was thinking about which books to discuss that there are some books that you you really enjoy in the moment but then don't necessarily stick with you as much and I think one thing I found with Goodreads is sometimes because you have to give your rating well you don't have to but like generally you would do it just after you've you've marked that you've finished the book um and sometimes there's definitely been a couple of times where I've like fluctuated between four and five stars yeah um so I've like initially given it four and then I've come back and been like actually you know what like I keep thinking about this book and I keep contemplating it and like thinking about characters and it's like really stuck with me And, and I think one of the books where that was the case which I definitely have talked about on the podcast before where it was The Goldfinch yeah. by Donna Tartt which again a bit like The Night Circus because I understand that like everybody else read this book years ago yeah. but I didn't so uh, that was me coming to it this year but I read that when I went to New York to visit my brother who was there at the time yeah. and I started reading it at the airport and then just carried on reading it on the plane and you know normally when you get on the plane you might be like okay I'll do something else now like I'll yeah. watch a film or something I was like no I just have to continue reading this book because I was so engrossed yeah. and it's very hefty and long and yeah it's like like I'm, I'm now miming like three inches yeah there's a lot going on and it spans like a great period of time um and I think maybe my reading experience would have been different had I been reading it just in my like day-to-day life because yeah. it probably would have taken longer for example um but I just found that the the character and the concept was so arresting and I was just so engrossed in the way that, you know, when you used to read Harry Potter books when you were young. And you yeah, you could read them in one go. It was like that and it was similarly length. And, and actually there's an interesting similarity to Harry Potter in that he becomes this orphaned boy who's kind of shoved from family to family and, and like has various things happen to him and, and people yeah. even compare him to Harry Potter physically they actually make that comparison in the book and I was like wow this is interesting this is how you know that you're like confident in your book's success to compare your main character to Harry Potter and be like <laughs> cool um, <laughs> yeah but I kept thinking about that book ever since I f- finished it um, and just like thinking about different things that happened in it. and even though towards the end there was a whole section where I was like this is a bit it kind of not dragged as such but it got a bit slow and it got a bit kind of complex in a slightly strange way i won't say what happened because it's a bit of a spoiler sure. for anyone who hasn't read it but i, I actually i one of those things i you know sometimes i'm like just tell me i'm not gonna watch it well but, I, I was or read it but i will read it you, but you, you probably will read it at some point and um yeah so I, there was a bit that's just a bit slower towards the end um and it's a bit strange but even in with that which is what initially gave made me give it four stars i still was like no i keep thinking about this book and i'm yeah. just like constantly thinking about the writing and thinking like she's such a intelligent and thought thoughtful writer Donata. yeah like i read the secret history and that was whack oh yeah that's crazy <laughs> crazy but i can't deny she's a good writer yeah um so that was one and then the other book that i think has particularly stuck with me is um the year of magical thinking oh uh, yeah um by joan didion which is about her the year after her husband dies and yeah. her reflections on grief and um what what her experiences were and the difficult different emotions that she's gone through and um it's just really really moving but it's very sparse in the way that it's written and it's not um it's not a particularly there are moments that are really emotional but they tend to be because they're actually very pared back and um simple they're not necessarily um they're not necessarily they're not like really long emotional paragraphs for example not saying that that would be a problem if it if they were like that but i think it's probably much more akin to most people's experience of grief in that it tends to be like she's just kind of living her life and then suddenly something will happen that will remind her of her husband or she'll suddenly be struck by kind of how bizarre it is that what has happened has happened and yeah i i just found it like a really really lovely book and it was a book that i had like had on my bookshelf for a long time and not read yeah because um I thought it was probably going to just be really, really sad. And obviously, in lots of ways, it is very sad. But essentially, I, I found it, like, just really helpful. I read it during a time where someone close to me had passed away. And yeah. I that's why I picked it up. Because, I'd, as I said, I had it on my bookshelf for some time and just thought it was going to be too sad and not really feeling like it. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, actually, you know, apparently this is... I'd, and actually, I think I did read some Goodreads books that, book reviews that said oh, I found this to be helpful and I found this to be a, a very, like, healing read. Yeah. And that's what kind of drew me to it. And I really did find that. And then I did actually lend it to various other people in my life who said the same thing. Um, and there are just lots of really memorable moments like this. This part where she um, 
she kind of has to come to terms with the fact that she wants to, she's going to have to give some of her husband's clothes away and she can't kind of keep everything she doesn't even necessarily want to but she wants to keep her shoes because in her mind she's like well if he comes back he needs his shoes and it's just like it's she even acknowledges to herself that she knows that's kind of crazy like she knows that's why it's called the year of magical thinking because it's yeah. like her world becomes like a magical realist world because she's the way she's thinking and her thought process she knows are not you know sensible or not um realistic yeah but it is the world that she is then inhabiting and so it's like this just just the way that her world has transformed and and yeah it's, so it's really moving and really just a very it's a very slim like novella kind of uh length book probably uh but i would really recommend it to absolutely everybody and she has obviously she's an incredibly talented writer and yeah um has written lots of different books and pieces of journalism and um she's an interesting character as well so yeah i think that was probably they were probably the two books that have stuck with me but like you i have also read um a lot of really great books this year that have really i really enjoyed like actually the last book of the year i read was um our new book club book this is gonna hurt the diaries of a junior doctor yeah which i think lots of people have read and raved about so i will just join there the myriad of voices telling you that you should read that book and it is really really funny but it also does have this message of like it making you realize like how much in the uk junior doctors go through and what they do for everybody every day it's insane like it's absolutely bonkers i mean I, I know a bit of it because my sister is currently trained to be a doctor yeah. um and she read this book on holiday and read out some of the most funny bits um including some terrible stuff that i'm like oh my lord i'm very glad i'm not a doctor oh yeah but... i mean it's really really entertaining and the the author and this he, he says this from the beginning so this is not a spoiler but he has left medicine and is yeah. now a comedian and a comic writer yeah. uh, which obviously shines through his diaries but they are the diaries that he kept during his years practicing medicine so there are lots of like funny anecdotes about different things that happened but it also really dials home to you like how crazy that lifestyle is and how full-on it is um so that was like a really good read and like i literally read that in a day um i also read um and you did too both books by um oh no her name is completely gone um sally Rooney, yeah. Oh, um, I also read, and I think you did too, both books by Sally Rooney. I had a conversation with friends so far. Oh, not you normal, read normal, not normal people. people, yeah. So I read Conversations with Friends, um, and then I read Normal People, and, and Normal People obviously got a lot of buzz this year, yeah. um, rightly so. And that was just a... I just think she's incredibly good at pinpointing like little details about human interactions in a way that is just so yeah you read it and you're like yes right. that is how i felt or that is how i've seen people behave in that and way. you can also see i've been in a conversation with friends but you see so essentially there's about a young woman who gets involved with a married man at the most basic level um not about the menage a quatre as they say no on the, it's, really it's not, not at all that, like no. that on the blurb don't believe the blurb but then again i should we should know this but um, and actually you see her thinking these things about the relationship that you can literally know aren't true because yeah. you have an outside perspective. Um, but still she doesn't stop thinking them. And I think her dedication to the delusions that we tell ourselves is really, like, it's really, it's difficult to do as a writer because you don't want your characters to behave the way that you do, but actually it's very human. Yeah, it, it means, it's like the minutiae of just, like, everyday yeah. interactions is what she specialises in and she does it incredibly well. And mm. Um, also one thing that uh, so there's a recent New Yorker profile of her um, where it talked quite a bit about how she uses email and text and modern communication in her books in in a way that is makes sense because they're set in the present day and people communicate a lot via these mediums but she manages to do it in a way that's still quote-unquote literary and and, and also like effective and doesn't like kind of damage the plot Mm -hmm. and in conversations with friends there's a whole there's the fact that the way Frances thinks about how she's going to write things and how when she's going to respond and in what way she's going to she's going to express herself and it's different to how she expresses herself in real yeah. life and apparently Sally Rooney says in this in this profile with the New Yorker that she thinks everybody has like an internet voice oh and I was like yeah, yeah. that's so true because so like right. if I saw a text message that was like you know especially if it was a decent length 
I would be able to tell whether it was from you or whether it was from like Catherine or Faye, like who are two of our other friends who might we have like a group chat. I would be able to tell based on just the language and forget about the content, even if the content was really universal and it could have been any of you, the way it was expressed, because you do both all have different internet voices. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating and I just think she's incredibly clever and she gets things like thrown up like one of the like um comments that gets thrown around about her is like she's salinger for the snapchat generation which is a bit of a like you know. also julie salinger wrote one good book they dissipated the ether and like you know objectively it's not even that like well she's written two books in the space of two years yeah. which have been incredibly successful and again but... salinger like i think salinger really epitomized like the rebellious sort of like work not working class but the unvoiced voice at the mm. time in the 60s no 60s, 50s, late 50s probably, when he yeah. was published yeah but actually there are plenty of voices nowadays I think what Tony really does is different from him is that she really yeah as you said she gets on the nose how it is that we really communicate nowadays and that's what people respond to because there's nothing like reading or watching something and seeing someone behave in a way that is like cringe and cringe similar to the way that yeah. you know you would behave in that situation yeah, sure. and i think that's something that it doesn't have to be set in the modern day for that to happen or set in the present day or to be re- references to snapchat in it for that to happen there's you know, no references to snapchat or instagram people at all. don't use snapchat like. it just, they just emailed each other <laughs> they just email yeah um but anyway i think that was like a yeah i really i'm really excited for what she does next i think everybody is yeah um, but yeah i i think i've read very few like duds this year like not that i would want to classify any book Ooh, as a dud i could probably talk about a dud let me see i'm going down to my like lowest rated oh frankenstein and baghdad oh yeah agreed yeah I dud think, i think that was I think, I think that was the lowest and i also think we already talked about that on the podcast yeah. so, so to sum up me and francesca both in like frankenstein and baghdad because essentially it was essentially a gory story about war in iraq um and if we're talking about the impact of war fine absolutely but the problem was is it was meant to be riffing on frankenstein a la what frank so jeanette winterson is going to be releasing a book called frankenstein yeah i saw this next this year yeah uh, which is another riff on frankenstein because mary shelley so the anniversary of mary shelley releasing frankenstein in mm. 1818 under her own name actually which is interesting um was 200 years ago yeah so everyone's been you know the literary world they've been picking up on it because it sells um frankenstein and baghdad n- it was meant to be in the tradition of Frankenstein, written by a woman, um, a mediation on power and the problems of science and of science going too far. Um, and actually, like, what started the mystery horror genre, you know, like uh, Dracula, Edgar Allan Poe, they all followed her. You know, and actually, I found that Frankenstein and Baghdad completely obliterated and kind of ruined not ruined, but didn't pay attention at all to what the tradition of Frankenstein really was. You know, it took the idea of the uh, the beast kind of, the, the golem-like beast taking revenge on people for their misdeeds that is a human and is in this war-torn, unhappy world. Yeah, other than that, completely missed the point. It was so tone-deaf and it got a lot of buzz for being like a war-torn, you know, Iraqi, Middle Eastern politics style reading of Frankenstein. Actually, my opinion, not very good. Well, I don't think it particularly... I mean, it was supposed to be that this um, Dr. Frankenstein-esque figure, uh, this guy, was going around um, creating this Frankenstein monster out of dead bodies of casualties of the war. Um, But aside from that element of the story, I don't think it particularly touched on the on the war in any particularly aside from who profited from it and the violence you yeah know? It, because it there was a, quite a lot of different strands that, or different elements to the book going on and i think this frankenstein pastiche of sorts was maybe a bit mishandled i, I think we were all a bit disappointed like we wanted to like it and we were interested by the concept and the yeah it was just the execution so yeah i think that was one that we were left keen on yeah the big dud of the year so with all that said, you know, I think the thing I learned about book reading this year is A, to know what you like. You wouldn't watch a film that you knew you wouldn't like. So what's the point in pretending that you could try reading a book that you knew you wouldn't like? Like, for some reason, I felt obligated to give a go to books that I knew I wouldn't like. This year, I really tried to, like, lean into what I do enjoy. And also, it's really taught me that, uh, you know all that can happen when you read a book is you have a reaction 
it's much better to read and react than to not read and just to not react to anything you know yeah I, I think that's really good advice I think you said that to me about um deciding you were just going to read what you want to read because yeah. I think there can definitely be this pressure of reading things that are supposedly worthy or yeah or people have recommended or people can be like I can't believe you didn't read that or you haven't read this or yeah. you know um and obviously I sometimes think oh there are so many books that I know I want to read at some point but have yet to get around to that perhaps are classics although generally I feel like probably have actually read quite a lot of the classics but there's always going to be some things that I haven't touched because it doesn't yeah. feel like my sort of thing or I just haven't got around to but then there's also nothing wrong with being like well right now i want to read something that i know is going to tick whatever box for me yeah being like absolutely a beach read or whatever yeah. it is um and i think that is really good advice and i also think um just having as you say it's having something on the go all the time in your bag i mean that that's never going to be a bad thing is it yeah, no. um and obviously you can read as much of it as you want to you know it's not it's not a what's the word it's not like a um a task that should be yeah it's not an exam you know, yeah, you so just you're doing it for pleasure do it wherever you, you like know. yeah um, but i think that that pressure of kind of feeling obligated is not constrained to reading because i think that also uh, transfers to like films people are like i can't believe you still haven't seen whatever film My favorite um, or like tv or you know so i think that's something that we live in an age where people do quantify like what they've what they've consumed and obviously yeah. we have a pop culture podcast so we are like quantifying right now yeah uh, but i think i'm sure you're aware that when we talk about things like when we talked about like, the oscar films in the past we've always been very honest that there is no way we've watched all of them because some of them were like that's not for us you know and not even so i mean i wouldn't like to say that either of us are like as definitive as that but there are some that you are like generally more attracted to than others or more intrigued by yeah don't forget we started on bohemian rhapsody and the golden globes jesus yeah we'll we'll well, we'll, we'll get on to that. We'll talk about this. Is a book podcast. <laughs> a book podcast only. Um, but yeah, so in that vein, you know, the only advice we can give is read what you like. If you don't like reading, maybe reconsider because there's always something out there for everybody. Yeah, there are so many different kinds of books, and um, there is certainly no pressure to read anything that is conceived as good or not good and yeah. in the end i think the, i think the human mind and the human soul thrives on other people's stories and empathizing with other people and being challenged and also being expanded so i mean if you don't genuinely don't like reading and you prefer watching to watching tv that's absolutely fine but i would consider i would encourage anybody who feels they don't want to read to just give it a go and just try like, something I, I know so many people who um say oh i don't really read very much but then actually are really passionate about a lot of the books that they do read and actually like harry potter like oh my gosh the amount of people who love that the, the people actually do really respond to books or something like this is going to hurt which has obviously had like an, a major response from across the board you know or eleanor oliphant which i also read this year and really enjoyed yeah and um, books that kind of break out and become like incredibly mainstream which, and everyone's read 900,000 copies have been bought this year in that book yeah and I know that from e, uh, that's Nielsen Bookscan data I'm quoting there. But I think when when that happens, and, and so my point being that lots of people do read. Like yeah. They might not read as much as you and I, uh, but they still enjoy reading. And they yeah. always like. I mean, I, I have friends who like wouldn't really read on a day to day basis, but whenever they're going on holiday, they would ask me like, "Oh, what what should I read this holiday?" You know. Yeah. So I think um, it is something that is always like, when do you regret having read a book? No, never. Like yeah so even something like frankenstein and Baghdad, which we didn't enjoy we can still kind of have a discussion about it and i saw one more ticked off on my boudoirs list one that, closer to 50 the other thing is we um obviously we talked about our book club in the past um it's our book club's two-year anniversary this week oh yeah it is uh, so, so exciting um, that's exciting and i think that's been something that's been really interesting for us and for everybody involved and uh, there are lots of people in the book club who are really into reading and would always read a lot and then there are other people who I like coming more for like the social side and enjoy a good read but like haven't really wouldn't necessarily be reading all the time right and it's also been a way of us reading things that we would never have read like Frankenstein and Baghdad um so I think if I would definitely recommend starting a book club if you are interested if you're interested 
And with that, we've gone on I feel long like enough. We've thought this has turned into very like inspirational. Like, this is what you should do, everybody. Read a book. Follow our advice. Read a book, everybody. And when you're doing while you're doing that, follow us at real LLW on Twitter. Uh, Love's Labour's Watch, no punctuation on Instagram, and Love's Labour's Watch at gmail.com. Francesca's made a face. No, no, we've just talked a lot, that's all. Um, so we self we do try and self-edit while we talk, guys. Don't don't think that we don't. Um, but yeah, um, we're really looking forward to this year. We have a whole bunch of stuff that we want to get into. Um, and overall, we're really hoping to get more guests, uh, continue just chatting about stuff that we like. Um, and hopefully, I don't know, make, make some money out of this. I just quit my job, so, you know, well, who knows? And on the special guest note, like, we'd just like to really thank eric lopez for coming last time um on the on the show we got some really great feedback about that episode and it was so exciting um to have somebody who's part of such a fantastic tv program be part yeah. of llw and equally it was really really wonderful to have hillary on today um if you know anybody who would like to come on the show uh, not just anybody to be fair but <laughs> we can't just be promoting anyone anyone um, on the show please do let us know anybody anyone who would Goodreads, Amazon, who own Goodreads. If you want to sponsor us, let us know. Because we love you and your service. Um, and we've talked about you enough today. Jeez, I'm alright. But yeah, I think that's it for this 2019 first episode. Do you think, Lam? I think so, yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you soon. Bye! Bye. Bye. <laughs> 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 <laughs>